I'm Philippe de Montebello, and it is my immense pleasure to welcome you once more to the picture Conversations with Aquavella Galleries. This episode of the Picture Podcast features a conversation between professor and author Joe Applin and curator Eleanor Nairn, who curated the new exhibition Eva Hesse, Hannah Wilkie, Erotic Abstraction. The exhibition, now on view at Aquavella Galleries in New York, is the first to pair these two pioneering artists, both of whom lived in New York on parallel, though not entirely synchronized, paths in the 1960s. Joe Applin teaches modern and contemporary art at the Courtauld Institute of Art in London, where she specializes in American art after 1960. Eleanor Nairn has been a curator at the Barbican Art Gallery in London since 2015, and this exhibition marks her first collaboration with Aquavella Galleries. On behalf of Joe Applin and Eleanor Nairn, welcome once again to the picture. Hey Joe, I'm so delighted that you could join us for this conversation this evening about the Hesse Wilkie show. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. No, it's, I'm disappointed to not see it, but I'm really excited to talk to you more about the exhibition. And I think when you first talked to me about this, it was a long time ago now, and I was really struck by this, what seems now a completely obvious pairing of Wilkie and Hesse, yet it's not happened before. So could you start us off and just tell us, how did you get to the idea of this show? Because I'm, I'm intrigued how you came up with this pairing. Definitely. So I was very lucky that I had a conversation with Eleanor Aquavella. So kind of tete-a-tete and Eleanor at Eleanor (laughs) about some works that we were both interested in and some artists who we felt maybe weren't sort of fully understood or that could be reappraised. And Eva Hesse and Hannah Wilkie both squarely fall within our area of interest. We were also talking at the time quite a lot about Bruce Nauman. And I think I'm always interested in the idea of what you can do with a duet between two artists, because if you stage it well, each artist shifts your understanding of the other. And I felt like both Hesse and Wilkie had become a little bit stuck in our interpretations of them. So Hesse, partly because of the tragic circumstances that surround her life. I still find it difficult to really take on board that she was 34 when she died. Wilkie also has quite a complex life and certainly a very combative relationship to feminism. And it's one of those classic things in relation to art history where we like to pigeonhole things. We like to place them in their own categories. So we've tended we've tended to feel that Hesse sits snugly within an idea of minimalism or post-minimalism, that second half of the 1960s in New York. And to think that Wilkie relates to this totally different moment, this kind of early 1970s, second wave feminist, central core imagery. We've thought of them as being in these two different worlds. And then it's kind of really exciting to think that actually Hess is down at 134 Bowery and Wilkie's up on 88th Street. And we don't know if they met, but they're inhabiting the same city and the same world for these years. And they share so many of the same concerns. So that was really the kind of birth of the show, because this is not about, you know, 
Hesse making a visit to Wilkie's studio say. This is not that kind of intermingling of influence. They each have their own space, but those two spaces face one another. So the idea was that you might leave the room of Hesse and enter Wilkie, and that Hesse might regain some of her levity, all that talk of absurdity and playfulness, and Wilkie might gain some gravitas and be seen with a little bit more sobriety as well, you know, because I think partly because of her beauty, she's tended to be seen in a slightly lightweight fashion. Yes, I think so, yeah. And they're just four years um, apart in age, aren't they? Which, you know, doesn't really constitute a generation, but somehow they are considered, as you say, very much in these two kind of generational moments, one of that early sort of minimalist moments of the early to mid-60s, and then Wilkie really coming into her own much later. But the revelation for me was those really early works by Wilkie, the works on paper, as well as the smaller sculptures that were much more known to us. But there was something absolutely extraordinary about those works that I don't think I'd really thought about in any depth before at all and I think bringing those to light was really important and it immediately complicates what we think of as Wilkie's trajectory doesn't it as an artist. Definitely and I think maybe it's useful to think here of the kind of the poster image or the like iconic images that we come to associate with a particular artist so for me I think of Hannah Wilkie topless on that poster where it says, beware fascist feminists, you know, whereas with Hesse, I think of those bleached out shots of 134 The Bowery with the white painted wall and they're not monochromatic, but it's a black and white photograph, the kind of all the different hanging pieces that she's got sort of lined up. It's almost zoological. So I think of these two very different poster images, but as soon as you kind of allow those to slip away, you realise that there's, there's a kind of proliferation of different things going on. And the same thing is true for me, for New York and the story about New York in that time. Because I was trying to think about how to characterise New York in this moment. You know, Hess has just been in Germany for a year. She returns in 1965, or very end of 1964. And Wilkie is splitting her time a little bit, but is sort of mostly up on 88th Street. And I was trying to think about how to sort of characterise the scene and actually realised almost immediately that it's sort of impossible, that we can point to these what now seem like quite iconic moments, you know, the eccentric abstraction exhibition or certain kind of texts or essays that were published by Lewitt or Donald Judd or these kinds of exhibitions at Leo Castelli, things that seem in hindsight to be very important. But actually, it's like there's 15 movements in one because you've got pop at the same time as you've got kind of minimalism at the same time that you've got a kind of emergent process art at the same time as you've got performance art, you've got early video art. And then I hit upon this statistic about New York galleries in that time. It's a really easy one to remember. And in 1955, there were 123 gallery spaces in New York. And 10 years later, in 1966, there were exactly double, 246. Gosh. So you just think, yeah. that makes sense. Of course there could be this whole multiplicity of scenes because they had all of these spaces in which to explore these different avenues. So I like that idea that... Maybe Hesse, you know, was absolutely not just a sculptor or a painter or, you know, maybe it's too restrictive to think of her in those terms or to just think of Wilkie in this more performative light. 
You know, it allows you to play a little bit of kind of art history in the conditional. Like we don't really know the artist that Hesse would have become. So let's not let it get too rigid in terms of our, our kind of understanding of her. And of course, painting was the other sort of constant in the early years of the 60s that still continued. There wasn't a sudden break where everything became assemblage art or pop art and then minimalism. Things are more messy than that. And and Judd certainly recognised that too. And of course, he came from a painting background. And the fact that we have these really early, astonishing works by both women that were really engaged with their training as, as painters also casts, I think, new light on some of those later works as well. The The persistence of painting as an idea. Definitely. I think there's a lot of the abstract expressionists yeah. in them. And you think, of course there is, because the New York school is still the resounding movement in the city. It's still the great story of post-war success in Manhattan. Of, of course, they're still very kind of relevant. They're exhibiting alongside them. You know, they're also being shown in these in these Manhattan galleries. But that, to me was a surprise. I think when I first looked at the early drawings that Wilkie was making, which are around the same time, actually, that, that Hess is doing them sort of 62, 63, they've got a real sort of punk energy to them. It's, it's, sort, of, it's sort of like a subversive take on, on de Kooning or Gorky. Um, and Hesse talks a bit about Gorky and his work. And then Wilkie, of course, does classes with Irving Sandler at NYU. I get the impression that she didn't entirely take to him as a tutor. <laughs> and I, I can imagine Irving Sandler having just published A Triumph for Painting, uh, which didn't, to my knowledge, feature a single woman artist in it. I'm not sure he would have gone down very well with a young Hannah Wilkie. And of course, Hesse had trained under Albers at Yale, hadn't she? So they both came from these very, you know, they kind of knew what they were doing and what they were working against. And I think that's when we bump into minimalism. And it seems like this very decisive break, this thing that happened that seemed to be some kind of rejection of everything that had gone before. But I think in the work of Wilkie and Hesse, what we see is them still wrangling with that expressive earlier mode of making at the same time. They begin to work with these forms of seriality, repetition, the kind of the cool headedness that we have historically associated with minimalism it really sort of heats up I think under their gaze in quite striking ways particularly with Hesse I think with her early interventions into the minimal field. It's really nice to hear you describe it like that I've been thinking a bit about Helen Molesworth has this lovely description in which she's she's talking about Hesse not being medium specific. She's talking about her kind of not really being a sculptor and not really being a painter. And she says that she thinks of her as somebody who works in the sexy tactile situation in between the two. And I just, you know, if we're allowed to have a a subtitle for this podcast, please can we call it the sexy tactile situation in between the two? (laughs) Because I, I just think it's wonderful, but maybe maybe we can take that same idea and use it for these notional schools or isms like who's to say there can't be a sexy tactile situation in between minimalism and abstract expressionism you know when I think about what it is that I feel most excited about with Wilkie and Hesse today what makes me really just want to spend time with the work now or excited to share it with other people It's that both of them, to me at least, had this absolute commitment to get at these spaces that are the most fugitive from description, which is why interviews with them are sometimes quite painful to read, because especially Hesse, you know, that long winding Nemsa interview, 
It's difficult because she's circling around things and back to things and she won't precisely name things, but it's because she's she's invested in the unnameable. She's in the interstice, the kind of Duchamp's enfermance. You know, she wants to get those kind of icky in-betweens. And I, it's an obvious thing to say that how do you feel that when you look at a shiny Donald Judd, <laughs> which is rejecting that. Right, and she was rejecting as well any sense that the body might be visible or recognisable in her work. And I think that circling around, that stumbling through language that we see so sort of brilliantly at work in Hesse where she won't be pinned down, does contrast, I think, with the usual narratives we have of Wilkie as being, you know, just out there. Here's my body, here's a body, you know, I'm going to call my abstract objects cunts, they're vaginal, it is what it is, you just have to deal with that. And she's saying that from the early 60s, and that's quite wild, really, to be saying that with these works that you could argue it takes quite a reach to see them in those kinds of visceral terms. There's no reason why they aren't understood as every bit as abstractly as Hesse's early works, except Wilkie does it. She kind of goes there and she names them as such. And that's the big, the big difference, I think. And perhaps that's, you know, one reason why Wilkie falls into the that flurry of erotic art exhibitions in 1966, 67 in New York. And, and Hesse is somehow detached from that, you know, which was lucky for her, I think. I don't think it did anyone much good being involved in that kind of brief moment of erotic art. Joe, I'm just trying to, um, I'm just trying to prompt a restaging. I mean, be careful what you're so dismissive <laughs> of. I'm hoping that erotic abstraction might be the beginning of a flurry of sexy exhibitions in New York, you know. It would be amazing, wouldn't it? <laughs> I think it could be have a few a few more women artists perhaps than, than <laughs> appeared in the earlier ones that were just uh, slightly more problematic. I think in some ways slightly less pornographic yeah. than hetero is. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, well, indeed, and Lucy Lippard was pretty critical of those. But there's, you know, it feels to me it's interesting, right, that Wilkie doesn't make the cut for something like eccentric abstraction, and Hesse does. That's a bit kind of of an unfair comparison because it's it's just eight artists in that show, and um, but there was something about that kind of teetering on the edge of the figurative and the too much, the too bodily that I think would have precluded her from that slightly cooler minimal abstraction that eccentric abstraction was still in conversation with you're absolutely right and that is is such an interesting question about why why we feel uncomfortable with that level of kind of explicit bodily referent so i think one of my favorite things that mignon nixon does in that essay that she writes about hesse's ring around a rosy is she talks about how even when Lippard refers to a breast, she puts it in adverted commas. Mm -hmm. And she picks up on this tiny little grammatical vestige of discomfort, of uptightness, about being able to name this part object within the work. I've spoken with Lucy about both of the artists and about, you know, her relationship with Hannah Wilkie at the time. And, and as you say, like, it's easy to forget that Eccentric Abstraction was Lippard's first exhibition. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, we think of it now as this kind of major event because, of course, it was and it's been the font of so much scholarship, including your own. But it was also an experiment. Like you say, it was eight artists. 
It really was, and the essay that she wrote to accompany that exhibition, which was published in Art International that month, I mean, this wasn't a time of exhibition catalogues and, and so on, so it was an eight-person show at the Fishback Gallery. And the essay really tried to give some historical context to why at this moment, where it seems that the minimalist object, it's kind of imminent, it hasn't quite exploded on the art scene in the way that it would the following year, but Lippard is really plugged in and she knows what's coming, she's in the studios of these artists, she knows exactly where things are headed. And for her, she was very clear that the artists that she wanted to exhibit in eccentric abstraction were in conversation with the with the minimalist object that was beginning to appear. And I think that's a really important factor to take into account that this wasn't set up against or in contrast to or as some kind of disagreement with the with the sort of work that had opened say at the 10 exhibition which opened very helpfully for us art historians on the same day in the same building as eccentric abstraction which was 10 minimalist artists but was actually explicitly in conversation with them and it was sort of taking their hard edges and and just kind of softening the corners and um you know adding something of that abstract erotic undertone that I think she must have perceived already at work in the minimalist object and it was just somehow exaggerated in the works by those artists that she selected Eva Hess is one of them Louise Bourgeois in that exhibition um, the amazing Alice Adams it's an interesting mix she's been to California and she's seen what's happening in the studios there as well so it is quite an extraordinary exhibition for sort of shifting the parameters of of what the New York art scene looked like at that moment so you're right it was small and with hindsight it's been much much written about but I it still holds I think that it, it was an absolute watershed for how we can think about sculpture at that time. But how funny that something that was intended as you say to be a kind of conversational response to what Lippard's finding in the studio visits that she's doing and perhaps a gesture towards defining a new direction that she's seeing that that experiment or that play or that gesture should become a kind of orthodoxy of its own. And I think that's what, for me, has been such a, a pity in the way that this does not just relate to Hesser and Wilkie, but artists like Hesser and Wilkie have been kept so severely separate um, because we can't countenance the idea quite of the mixing. Because, for instance, with Hesser, we can't bracket her as a feminist. She reads Simone de Beauvoir. She copies out extracts of it, of the second sex into her diary. But she also, when Cindy Nemser writes to her about the discrimination that she might have faced as a woman artist, she curtly writes on the bottom of the letter, excellence knows no sex and just sends it back, you know. So, but she's not yet quite in that moment where those dialogues are taking off. But for me... That's not to say that there aren't proto-feminist tendencies within her work or that the some of the imprint of that can't be felt. And I just I just think we have to be careful about being too strict between these things. And likewise, there's a great quote from Wilkie in which she says, this was similarly, I think these poor women artists that are always being interviewed at this time, Art Wright in 74 asked women artists about this idea of a shared female sensibility, which of course is the kind of reigning question at the time. And she gives this, you know, fantastic quote. But amongst other things, she says, if I am going to become pubic princess of a new movement, I sincerely hope it will also include the awareness of it being innovative sculptural form. Because she's perfectly aware of this false dichotomy of the idea that 
someone like Hesse might be seen as a really pioneering avant-garde sculptor, but sadly not such a feminist. <laughs> and Wilkie will be seen as a really interesting, feisty activist feminist, but not much of an artist. You know, that why why do we feel so uncomfortable allowing these artists to be many things at once? I think that firstly we need we have to get rid of the phrase post-minimal. As soon as that was introduced into the vocabulary, everyone gets in a pickle because it's sort of happening at the same time as minimalism and then Eva Hess was kind of doing that sort of post-minimal stuff years before minimalism even becomes a thing and so I think that term when it emerged really kind of threw the whole the whole thing off and began sort of hiving people off into very particular boxes you know Hesse's friends with the minimalists Wilkie is kind of has a complicated relationship to the feminists and as soon as we start deciding when feminism happened and and who's a feminist and who isn't and who's a post-minimalist and who's um, an abstract artist and so on that's where figures start falling in the cracks and I think that the phrase you talked about the proto-feminism of Hesse and I think that's exactly right and I think that in the earlier years of the 60s these amazing brave complicated women didn't have a politics they didn't have a vocabulary they didn't have a language to hang on to you couldn't say I'm a feminist it didn't it wasn't really a thing that one could be or imagine at that point and at worst it was just detrimental to your career you know, an androgynous name was always best, Lee Montague, Lee Lozano, they've, you know, gallerists thought they were men until they met them. And I think that it wasn't, the decision to be a feminist is slightly different, isn't it, to being a member of the feminist art movement or affiliating with a certain group of women at a certain moment in New York. And I think we have so many examples of of artists that we would readily claim as feminists now who are working in the 50s and 60s who would just refuse that label throughout their careers because it was also felt to be a real career death knell as well. You were then either, you know, forever going to be stuck in exhibitions with other women or your work was never... And this is what Wilkie's getting at, isn't it? That, you know, the work won't ever be considered on its own terms if it's immediately identified as being by a feminist or being feminist art. And I think that these labels immediately are what have caused this this kind of splitting so that it seems surprising to us now that we would think Hester and Wilkie together. I think it's because of all those earlier groupings and kind of generational splittings that, that happened. So Wilkie's a 70s feminist and Hester's a kind of an anti-feminist of the early 60s and it just doesn't do either of them justice in some ways. So let's put them back in their sexy, tactile situation in between and maybe think about latex. I love thinking about this moment. I love thinking about this moment sort of late 1967 and Eva Hesse has discovered liquid latex. You know, the Fishback Gallery are about to find out that they have to put her solo exhibition back by six months because she is so busy painting layers of latex into muffin cases to create schema. You know, she's busy. She's got work to do. It takes, she thinks, at least 10 layers to make the... The base, because it takes so long to dry. So she's she's cooking, you know? I just, I love the idea of when a new material feels like it lands into this tiny little artistic milieu and Nauman is working with it and Bourgeois is working with it. And I, I think it's around, a little later, around 69, that Linda Benglis will start working with it. Why do you think they're so psyched about latex? 
I think it is because, so soft sculpture also has its moment, remember, in the early 60s, 62, Oldenburg has his big show at the Green Gallery. And so he's not, he's working at that point still with fabric. He's painting it and he's kind of just understuffing it. So it, it feels soft, but um, the materials are still very familiar. And I think that the discovery of a material that can go from soft to hard, that can be malleable, that has a certain kind of lifespan, and a, there's a temporality built in, like you've got a certain amount of time to work with it. All of these were just so exciting for artists keen to think about other ways of imagining what an object could be and what its perimeters could could be and what it could kind of contain as a term. I think it pushes sculpture to its most to its most elastic as a term when you know the edges themselves are unclear. And I think something that Wilkie really enjoyed with her big those kind of floral protrusions mounted on the wall was that the the pore of the latex would just have to settle at a certain point. So you're working with material that can pool and puddle and go from sort of soft to hard. I mean, these are very strange things for a sculpture to do at that time. And I think that there was something so unmistakably sort of fleshy and and eccentric to the feel of latex. I and mean, we know this now, right? It's a fetish material. And they got that immediately, that that was something that could feel like sculpture hadn't felt before. And that was, it was radically, new and I think one of the most exciting things that I've ever discovered in the archive was the original flyer for eccentric abstraction which was a square of pink latex and it just had the title and the artists and the date printed so it's a floppy square of pink latex this literally embodied the radical shift right here's a flyer for an exhibition and it's a square of of cool tacky pink latex so I think the opportunities it offered was just mind-blowing, I think, for artists at that time. Wilkie, likewise, is so excited by liquid latex that she installs a plaster of Paris uh, floor into her studio so that the cool plaster will arrest the edges of the pore, which I love as a phrase. That's also a kind of very Linda Bengliss idea that, that you would get that kind of wonderful seashore line around the kind of area that she would pull onto that floor. And I think these materials remain unbelievably touching, you know, and, yeah. and they're mortal. They're mortal materials. And we see that with Hess's work now, you know, Hess is one of those artists that I think I would love to stage a retrospective of Hesse. I don't know if another retrospective of Hesse will happen in my lifetime. You know, they are such difficult shows to be able to stage on that scale because some of these works really can't travel. Um, they are deteriorating and that is enormously sad and moving and also human. <laughs> and it's impossible to kind of look at these objects and and not be able to feel moved by them. And then similarly, I think of some of the kind of unusual materials that Wilkie was working with as well, the erasers or putty rubbers, uh, the chewing gum, you know, which obviously comes with all of the ideas of mastication with it. You know, these, these are sort of fantastically inventive. I, when I was recently doing some research on Dubuffet, I came across, who, who was a kind of interesting uh, reference point for both of them, actually. I came across a reference that he was using tampons in like 1944 in his printmaking. You know, and I love that about artists, that kind of magpie relationship to sort of, this might be able to be the thing. 
I think Anne Wagner talks about that so interestingly with Eva Hesser in relation to Canal Street as well, that, you know, okay, she's, she's using latex, but she's also using inner tubes. <laughs> she's also using grommets and things that you could buy by the weight, by the pound from kind of hardware stores. That was fascinating, wasn't it? That you would just get a bag of kind of bolts and nuts and then you would do with it as you wish. I get thinking what these befuddled store owners must have thought as this kind of hordes of young artists are buying up these strange objects from their hardware stores. But it was all a form of experimentation, wasn't it? And I think with late, there's a kind of a, there's a chemistry to it in certain points. I think that there's artists are working with sculpt metal that really has its moment as well in the in the 50s. And, you know, you have to learn how to make these and to work with them and to both Hester and Wilkie were aware, weren't they, of the lifespan of latex that they were aware they were making works that would would change over time. And so this move from soft to hard is there, but then they go from soft to hard to, I guess, brittle, and they discolour, and they do things that perhaps they wouldn't have been aware of. And I think that the, the afterlife of those objects, the fact that we can't exhibit them now, that they can't be seen now, is a really... That's the kind of the unexpected ending to that story. I think they knew that it wouldn't potentially last, but that it would change so dramatically over time is is quite it's something to kind of think about isn't it because there was something about the pink fleshy sort of tackiness that feel of latex that just isn't there now it just does it does another kind of job entirely I think that we could probably still think about in terms of the body and skin and kind of aging and I think that there's another kind of narrative around those works that could not have been imagined in 1969 or 70 and it was the same working with fiberglass these were all new materials to the artists that they had to learn how to mix and how long they would take and how to make them stable and so on so it's a really extraordinary moment of experimentation and it's something artists could kind of do sort of on their own as well so you do have the kind of minimalists who are beginning to outsource to factories and manufacturers because they need them to help make certain pieces but there's other for me it's the stuff you can do in your studio and you can work with latex and you can play with your chewing gum and you can fold bits of paper and then you can kind of play with clay like this just the stuff of the studio that you can do things with and we see that in so many artists work at that time you know muffin trays and um just wondering what you can do with the stuff around you I think is quite you know this kind of provisional aspect of chance I think to a lot of the work you know they live in these kind of ex-industrial sort of loft spaces they have these kinds of materials and so this is what they work with. So there's something super sort of contemporary about it as well. You know, this is this is what felt like the most contemporary materials and objects to them at that point. Definitely. But I think they're also very, very smart at finding materials that will have multiple signification so that we'll be able to kind of pivot in terms of your associations in these different directions. So if you think about something like Hesse's use of the washer, for instance, on the one hand, it's got something very mechanical, it's industrially produced, it's got a shine to it, it's got a hard edge, but it's also used for plumbing. So it implies liquid, it implies movement. It's what Mel Bochner famously called Hesse's relationship to the body as a sewer system, <laughs> you know, that there's this way in which you can feel that there's, yeah, there's plumbing at, at play. Or again, if we go back to those kind of erasers with, with Wilkie, that we're looking at something that she's producing, but it can also remove things. It has that softness to touch. So it has the kind of fingertips already ingrained in it, but it's been misplaced into something else. 
And, and of course, she use, deliberately does the wordplay of needed erase her, <laughs> you know, so she's always kind of looking for, a, for an opportunity for a pun. She's definitely Duchampian in that, in that sense. But I think they're very clever at finding how they can create, again, it's back to the sexy tactile situation. How can they create these really ambivalent spaces that don't have one simple set of signifiers that go with them? Yeah, they're not comfortable works, are they? And I think, for me, that's always a really helpful way to think about their sort of relative feminisms, as it were. You know, they have these really spiky, uncomfortable relationship to feminism, and they have a really ambivalent relationship to how they figure the body as well. I think it's, you know, there's not much celebration going on in in these works. I think it's funny. I think it's quite deliberately kind of absurd at moments. And I think that's, and it is funny, I think, plumbing as well, because it's like the body and it's, you know, there's these kind of strangely phallic kind of rubber tubes everywhere you know it's kind of funny too and I think that's a really important part of their practice not to diminish it I think you're right when you said in the you know that there's a kind of a seriousness that needs to be attended to both their practices Wilkie perhaps in particular but there's a kind of subversive humour that runs through their work that I think as you rightly say they knew exactly what they were doing and the kind of games they were playing with their materials and it makes you uncomfortable and I think that they're both very um they're very very comfortable with that with that fact it might be embarrassing or ludicrous or you just feel a bit thrown or you can't work out what's going on and that seems to be a driver for for their work and of course they both sort of perform their works don't they in those amazing photographs we have of both artists it can't be an accident that we have so many astonishing photographs that are kind of instruction manuals um, in some way where they sort of perform for us like in really different ways you know Hess is more likely to hide behind her work than she is to kind of perform in front of them in the way that Wilkie did and I think that marks a quite a shift in their self-presentation and the way in which they kind of find themselves in their work I mean that is that is a difference mm. isn't it between their work definitely and it's and a very yeah it's a very striking difference because I think Wilkie has an explicit agenda which is about thinking about beauty and which Mm -hmm. is about thinking about how we contend and certainly how beauty was contended with then at the time and how much again back to that idea of discomfort how much discomfort was produced by her beauty and how she was very used to being it's actually worth saying about both artists in a way you know by the time we're looking at them in their early 30s they've they've both been married they've both separated and they've both been the less famous half of an artist couple. So Wilkie for a long time was with Oldenburg. And I think that was also a big part of historically understanding why she was also heavily marginalised because she was at the time often described as Oldenburg's girlfriend, you know, and people found it difficult to take her seriously as an artist in her own right. And Hesse faced many similar challenges earlier on when she was married to Tom Doyle. And of course, what helps her is that she has this incredible kind of fraternity of artist friends like Sol LeWitt and Bochner and and others who really support her once she returns to New York and, and separates from Doyle. But I do think I do think it's interesting to think about the place of their of their biographies. You know, I'm aware that Somebody like Darby English, for instance, has spoken of the danger of pathologizing Hesse's art by reading it through the circumstances of this extraordinarily tragic life. And I think that's a very astute and important comment to make. But 
an artist is also born of their own context and it's also impossible not to think about the fact that she fled as it not even as a child as an infant she fled with her sister from the holocaust and uh her mother committed suicide when she was 10 uh she had very ongoing problems with mental health throughout her teenage years and later and then of course dies in incredibly young from a brain tumor and i think if we're talking about her decision to use mortal materials it doesn't feel irrelevant that she has suffered so much death and so much loss in her life. And it's interesting that Wilkie, who similarly uh, is born into a Jewish family, although of second generation immigrants, is able to be much more explicit about that, about the way in which her experiences of death have really inspired this kind of, it's, it's almost like the kind of Freudian tension between Eros and Thanatos. You know, she really has felt this commitment to, to love and to eroticism and to the body very much as a drive born out of her earlier experiences of, of death. She also lost her parent, her father died when she was 20, very suddenly. And I wonder whether the, the four years age difference between them is, a, is part, you know, it's a personality thing as well, but is part of what gives Wilkie that position to be able to say that so confidently and so adamantly in a way that was perhaps harder for Hesse because she was surrounded by artists who felt that the biographical needed to be extinguished from the plane of their work, that they needed to get away from the heroism of abstract expressionism and of this period after the war. And that's where feminism kind of comes in, right? By the by the seventies, this kind of when the personal becomes political, and where it is kind of a moment where the uh, you might inscribe yourself into the work in really powerful ways that might not you know that might sit parallel to your own actual experiences and lives but nonetheless treats the idea of a life as a serious material for a work of art and you're right that's just not a moment that Hess is coming out of and I think that you know she used art perhaps in different ways so both of their narratives are marked by their illnesses and then their their respective eventual deaths but they were of a very different order as well I mean you know that was the problem when Hesse died was that there was an immediate kind of repackaging of her life as entirely tragic as if she'd known all along that she was going to die at 34 which of course she didn't. This is a terrible, sudden tragedy that happened to her. And I think that there's, you know, that was a big problem that needed to kind of be disentangled immediately, which is different, of a different order, I think, to Wilkie's really extraordinary um, engagement with her mother's illness and then her own illness and starts to think through questions of family. And she's, she's sort of able to do that. She kind of lives it and experiences it. And then we, of course, are able to do that through those just incredible bodies of photographic work that she makes later on. But I think that they do each manage it in very different ways and through having very different lives I think and perhaps you're right that four years in part does make a difference I think that the 70s was a foundational moment for the return of the body in ways that didn't have to be couched in inverted commas and embarrassment exactly that couched in embarrassment I mean there's Hesse when it comes to it she says if I had to say what my work was about it would be about the total absurdity of life you know, so she's she's there. <laughs> she's saying this is this is about 
life with a capital L, not just her life and her personal experiences, but also about grander ideas of life and creativity and where things come from and how how organisms work. I always think it's interesting that when she's studying, you mentioned she studied at Yale with Albers, and she writes a paper about the abstract expressionists in which she's talking specifically about the origins of of growth and how they represent growth within their work. And I think you you feel that right right through to the end. But that notion of the total absurdity of life is there within Wilkie as well, but so much more irreverently. You know, she it's like she's really able to kind of own it and embrace it in a in a different kind of way. Whereas Hester just struggled and of course that year in Germany that you were talking about earlier was incredibly difficult for her. It's the first time she's returned to Germany. She's, you know, living in a German environment again. It's incredibly you know, I think traumatic for her. And yet born of that is this kind of wonderful series of absurd, um, quite joyful, I mean, I think hugely joyful, the crazy like machines, she describes them, those drawings that then kind of start to burst from the wall in the in the relief form. And for me, it's just really striking that from that experience, she's able to produce, um, or because, I don't know, because of perhaps that experience, she's able to produce those works which really start her on her way I think that's such a formative year for her yet it's an incredibly difficult year you know personally in terms of you know her marriage at that time but also having returned to Germany as well I think it's it's such an extraordinary moment in in her career. And a year that she wouldn't have had had it not been for Tom Doyle. You know, it is very clear that this is a residency that's been offered to him and she is invited to join him as his artist partner, you know, which is just worth taking a minute to ponder as like one of the most important women artists of the 20th century who only decided she wanted to make sculpture because somebody decided to let the girlfriend come along for the ride. You know, like it's it's that feeling still great, I think, of that was how she came by that opportunity. It's so formative for her because she misses that season in New York, which is a really important one. You know, the Green Gallery is just really having its brief but most amazing burst of productivity at that time. And yet there she is, she's travelling around Europe and she's seeing really extraordinary works and she's seeing really different stuff. And I think she sees stuff that she wasn't going to have seen in the kind of the New York hothouse at, at that point. So it was... It worked in some way, but yeah, it was a, a very sort of by chance moment in her career. She's also kind of idle in an interesting way. You know, she's also dipping bits of twine into uh, buckets of liquid plaster and then tying the ends and then threading it through a piece of screen and then repeating it hundreds of times. You know, there's also a sense in which which is sort of what you're describing really of like, what is born out of when we provide an artist with space and time? And can we just continue to remember what happens when we take an artist and we give them space and time and just allow them? There was no expectation, you know, she does end up doing her first exhibition out there in Germany, but that wasn't a kind of precondition for her being able to travel. And it's wonderful to think that these kinds of watershed moments are born out of that complete freedom from expectation right exactly I mean you know and sort of depressingly this has been a lot of women artists throughout the 20th century lots of time to have very low stakes engagement with their practice because there hasn't been a huge interest and audience for them in the earlier stages of their career so you know on the one hand that's that's because of 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 neglect Um, but at the same time it produced quite extraordinary things it's a freedom that comes at a cost 
financially, psychologically, but certainly the works that are produced in those idle moments. And that's how I think of, I don't know if it's true, but that's how I think of Wilkie's chewing gum pieces and those wonderful ones kind of stuck onto the kind of the monuments, onto the postcards and so on. There's a kind of like a sort of a lazy act of sort of just sort of casual destruction there that I think is very powerful too. And then when you see the amazing folded ceramic pieces arranged in that sort of minimal grid, yet each one is entirely idiosyncratic seeming. But they're both, aren't they? Because they're kind yeah, of pro- they they're products of products of idle time, but they're also unbelievably labour intensive. You know, so I'm going to take this threefold form and then I'm going to make it two hundred times. You know, it's <laughs> each of these. It's a very simple, almost meditative gesture, then repeated ad infinitum, ad nauseum, you might say. Absolutely, and the grid is what allows them to do that. It's just like, because it's so tightly constrained, there's a whole world within it that you can kind of um, play with and the parameters, and that's what we see both of them doing in, I think, extraordinary ways, really different ways too. I think the, you know, the way that Wilkie's doing that, and I think that seeing the two together in this way, I think you're absolutely right, sheds, you know, that we see them each differently. They've each been knocked sort of slightly... Um, off kilter that's what I hope I hope yeah. come and see yeah. Hessa Wilkie askance um, <laughs> and, and what do you what do you think that their work means now when we think of them in a contemporary context or we think of them in relation to artists practicing now the afterlife of their practice is just felt everywhere, I think. So as a teacher of art history, not fine art students, the appetite to think about and talk about and write about their work is is enormous and heartfelt and very, very serious. And I think that we see it everywhere in so many contemporary exhibitions. Anyone who's working kind of seriously in sort of abstract sculpture, working with materials now, it's hard not to think of the 60s as being this kind of like the origins of so much contemporary sculptural practice, I think, in a way as a start point and I think there was a point that it was post-minimalism was considered this this moment of rethinking what sculpture could be and I think in recent years it's much more we're much more likely to say oh this reminds me of Louise Bourgeois of Eva Hesse of Hannah Wilkie and I think it's in part to do with the coming into visibility of these artists as much as artists returning to them I think that we've had these real opportunities in recent years to really understand them as foundational to a certain way of thinking with materials and And I think that is something that just feels so obvious and so present in so many younger artists' practice. But what do you think? I mean, as a a curator, what are you seeing in the studios when you go around? Do you see those legacies in in artists' work now? Definitely, without a doubt. And it's funny also, I was looking on my bookshelf the other day and I saw that the... I don't know if it's the most recent edition, but certainly one of the Whitney's handbooks, their guides to their collection, has one of Hannah Wilkie's SOS portraits on the front. And I thought, how interesting that they can only have five or six artworks that they use to illustrate the cover. And that, you know, for the Whitney Museum of American Art, she's one of the kind of linchpin figures to present there. It made a lot of sense to me, but I thought, I wonder if they would have done that even 10 years ago. So I think... You definitely you feel their impact in contemporary artist practice and I, I see it a lot in terms of studio visits but I think also in terms of you know they they invented a language like each in different ways a, a sculptural language but they were also giving voice to aspects of experience which continue to be 
very hard to pin down now, like even on a basic level, when I was writing my essay for the text, there's one moment where I refer to phallic form and there's one moment where I refer to yonic form, which is a kind of throwback to the 70s. You know, phallic is a word that is in common parlance and many people would be familiar with. Not many people know what yonic means. (laughs) Like we literally don't have vocabulary to describe these things. So I think the political power of that as a gesture, whether it be Wilkie who's doing that really very explicitly and is saying, you know, this is this is vaginal imagery and it has the capacity to allow us to think about the font of creativity and nothing could be more important right now. You know, that's Wilkie's stance. Or whether it's Hesse who's saying, well, this is a washer. And if you choose to read something into the central hole of this washer, then so be it. (laughs) I'm not here to say how you read this. But in either of those instances, they're creating spaces in which we can be thinking about form and touch and maybe a felt sensation of the body from the inside. I think that's it, and they're doing it with and through materials, and that's what artists want to do, ultimately. It's precisely that. It's not about the words and the language that we might attach to them. It's somehow giving form to them, isn't it, through through the stuff itself, the latex, the plaster, the kind of the handling. You knew what you were doing with that. You understood the kind of formal play between the the artist that was going on that you wanted to shed light on. But for somebody to come in and to see these works, maybe for the first time, are they going to see what, what we see? Are they going to see things differently? Is it going to be the materials or the, what is the, what is, what are they going to see in those works? I mean, it's really hard, isn't it, to imagine, but what would you, what would you hope that they might take away or be immediately struck by? On one level, I think they're going to come into these shows and they're going to see two artists who really knew the power of elegance and restraint. Mm. You know, they both, they both really uh, build on the kind of minimalist legacy in, in that sense. Can we even call it a legacy if it's happening contemporaneously? They build on those minimalist ideas in that respect because, you know, we see that within Hesse. So you'll have, first of all, Ring Around a Rosie and those string forms spiralling round, but then painted in these gradated colours. And then you'll have those agonisingly simple but beautiful little works on paper where she's just drawing a simple ring inside each square of graph paper. And just how the simplicity of a gesture like that, a pencil mark within each square, and how each circle, some press up against the lines of the grid and some don't quite meet it and some sit slightly to the left and some slightly to the right and... You look at these little circles and they're so handmade, they're so hand-drawn and they, they're clever and funny because they, they seem to make reference to things like, you know, the history of artists in the Renaissance proving their skill by being able to freehand a perfect circle. You know, she can't freehand a perfect circle. But they also feel almost like little cartoon characters in their cells. Somehow each little circle takes on its own personality and its own form. And I think in the hands of, um, in the hands of an artist like Hesse and Wilkie, such simple gestures like that are able to pull at our heartstrings. You know, how, how can you take a piece of paper that you drew circles on in 1966 and say that that's still gonna feel moving for me now? 
And I feel very similarly looking at something like the Needed Erase Her Works uh, by Wilkie, those little squashed erasers lined up on white squares. So I hope that an artist kind of wandering into the show or maybe not knowing quite what to expect of their work would see real formal skill and restraint, but also that these very simple forms are quite beguiling and really able to to grab you. Thank you, our listeners, for joining us in this episode of The Picture, Conversations with Aquavilla Galleries. Be sure to subscribe to The Picture to hear other episodes in the series featuring artists, curators, journalists and collectors. For Joe Applin and curator Eleanor Nairn, and from all of us at Aquavella Galleries, thank you for listening.